Greetings um, from San Elmo Presbyterian Church. We're a small PCA church at the bottom of Lookout Mountain uh, in Chattanooga. Cal Burroughs was our pastor for 30 years and retired in 2020. And we now have an interim pastor, Bill Massey, uh, who has been shepherding us during uh, this period of transition. Um, actually, Bill told me um, yesterday that he, um, he took a preaching class from, from George some years ago. So I don't know if you remember him. But um, so the pastoral search committee is really busy uh, working to find our next permanent pastor. So we would appreciate your prayers. <clears throat> I remember reading an interesting book about 20 years ago, uh, a page turner. I'll never forget the experience uh, reading it. I couldn't put the book down. The story was riveting, harrowing in some ways, but still um, fascinating. Neil Gabler was uh, the author of the book, and the title is Life the Movie, How Entertainment Conquered Reality. And the title pretty much gives away the main, its main argument. The book came out in 1998, and the basic argument was that entertainment dominates all sectors of North American society. Uh, we live in the republic of entertainment. And if you've read uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, it was sort of in that tradition. Um, tabloids, gossip magazines, uh, reality TV sitcoms, movies, social media, um, these forces of amusement have changed the way Americans view reality. Um, I don't know if you've seen that older movie, The Truman Show with Jim Carrey. Um, in essence, Gabler was arguing that we're all Trumans now. Uh, people see their lives as a movie, uh, a sitcom, and in a strangely conflicted way, they, they want tension, they want plot twists, they want drama, uh, because that's what entertainment is about. Um, in some ways, if we turned Gabler's book into a really dumb, a really dumb horror movie, I think he was saying, we're all Kardashians now. Um, actually, Gabler joins um, a long line of commentators who have worried that entertainment has transformed public life in America for the worse. Um, I guess we can leave it to sociologists and historians to debate the validity of Gabler's thesis. But it does trigger a question that I want to raise for us this morning. What, what is your narrative? What story are you inhabiting today? I think it's an important question for us to ponder as believers. We need to consider this question honestly because there are many, there are many stories out there. We're surrounded by counter narratives vying for our attention. I don't need to tell you this. We could run down the list. Movies, social media, peer group, post-Christian culture. And all of that shapes us, it catechizes us, it seeks to form us into its own image. It's, it's kind of a worldly discipleship. And so we end up living in sort of a fake story, like the matrix. And this is true even if we're not making a rational choice about it. It's just a way that we've been molded. But we know there's only one true story. 
There's only one tale that trumps all others. And we see that story in the early chapters of Genesis. Uh, these foundational chapters orient us to everything that is coming, to who we are and the meaning of it all. And I suspect that's one reason that modern scholars have developed all sorts of ingenious ways to, to kind of ignore or relativize Genesis 1 to 11. At the heart of what Moses wrote is a story so different from what is mainstream in our culture today. It's the original template to which all our best fairy tales were always pointing. Um, and that, my friends, is what's so glorious about the life God has given us. He has written us into this story. We are protagonists in a great drama. Our text this morning is Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. Um, I'm going to be reading from um, the NIV. Uh, forgive me, um, but please listen to God's word. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. So there's just one big idea that I want to highlight from this passage. Now, it's simple, but I think it makes a world of difference. God has made us for community. God has made us for community. So I'm going to bring out this point in the text from, sort of, from three angles. First, uh, Adam's relationship to the animal kingdom. And second, Adam's relationship to Eve. And then third, God's relationship to everything. So I don't know if you're taking notes. My, my three points are Adam and the animals, Adam and Eve, and God overall. Um, as we get started, um, let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, I want to begin at verse 19. 
Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. So we're still in the early, we're still early in the Genesis narrative, right? There is a God, a God who exists before everything. And in fact, this God defines reality. There is reality because of God. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1, before anything creaturely existed, three was the loveliest number. Within the life of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit was a relentless, overflowing love. There was perfect satisfaction, delight, and joy This was a time before there was time, at least time as we know it. God is infinitely happy, happy within the Trinity, and he needs nothing else, what theologians call the aseity of God. He doesn't need a universe to be happy. He doesn't need humanity to be happy. He doesn't need us. But that's what makes the story so poignant Though he doesn't need us, he wants to create. He wants his love to overflow. He wants to do the coolest things. It delighted him to make an entire universe, billions of stars full of solar systems and galaxies and supernovae and black holes and the Milky Way. Who does that? Who has that kind of superpower and hypergenius? Who is this being called God for whom the universe itself is all in a day's work? But people, this is nothing, right? He's just getting started. We haven't even seen the new heaven and the new earth. We haven't seen the kind of holy creatures that will be walking around in New Jerusalem. But I'm getting ahead of myself because we're in Genesis 2 not revelation. So, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity, there is an inexhaustible love within the Godhead. God didn't need to create. There was happiness within and between the three persons of the Trinity. But that wasn't enough for God. He wanted to make things. He wanted to build entire planets He wanted to share that love with his holy creatures, and he's good at it. Remember Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. That's exactly what we would expect from this God. So now, listen to the first part of verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And if you caught that, there's this glorious, glorious, glorious creation, a vast universe, a beautiful garden bursting with a fantastic array of trees and the sweetest fruit. And there was Adam, a living soul with the great privilege of enjoying all of it. Remember, this is God's creation. There is no sin. This is as good as it gets, but not quite. Because even then, God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. 
It's not good for Adam to be alone. There's something missing. There's something missing. And then in verses 19 to 20, we see that Adam shares this new world with the animal kingdom. There's this brand new planet full of real things that God invented. Waterfalls, the sunset, oak trees and magnolias, blue skies, the Grand Canyon, the northern lights, sand dunes in the Sahara Desert, and on and on. It's breathtaking. 10,000 hours of Discovery Channel can't capture it. That's enough, isn't it? No. God didn't want Adam to be alone. So he added another layer of wonder and creativity. He filled the earth with all kinds of other creatures. It boggles the mind. Goldfish, salmon, whales, eels, and dolphins, weird things like the blobfish and the psychedelic frogfish, a real thing, by the way, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, beetles, frogs, elephants, cats and dogs, animals of all shapes and sizes, the Formosan magpie, golden pheasants, kingfishers, eagles and hawks, sparrows, hummingbirds. Biologists tell us there are over eight million animal species on this planet, and most of them have not yet been discovered. Adam was surrounded by creatures of all kinds, creatures in the water, creatures on land, creatures taking flight in the skies. Let me say this. Um, I hope some of any high school kids um, here, I hope some of you become scientists, zoologists, biologists, oceanographers. I hope some of you will take up callings that help us appreciate the wonder of God's creation. God has made us for community. Adam was not alone in this world God had created. He shared that creation with other creatures. God has made us for community. But notice in the text, God brings the animals for Adam to name. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Scripture is very clear that Adam was unique. He was special. And that's why he named the other animals. God gave Adam authority over the rest of creation. And this, this is the idea of kind of human uniqueness. As Christians, we're sometimes skittish about embracing the concept. We're afraid because of the way humanity has mistreated the created order and the, the environmental crisis looms in our consciousness. And I agree that killing our environment is wrong. Poaching elephants and rhinos in Africa is wrong. I agree that the illegal abuse of animals of God's creation, these aren't good things. And I think we would even say this, environmentalism makes the most sense given the Christian story, not given the secular and naturalistic story. This is God's world. These are God's creatures, not ours. God has called us to be wise stewards over his creation, not to abuse, not to abuse that privilege. But it is still true that God gave us a status above all the other creatures he made. Adam was unique. Humanity is unique. 
The harder question is whether we are living up to that privileged status. God made us for community, but our text has more to say. Um, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Then Adam names the animals, but then in verse 20, it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Friendship with animals, as wonderful as that is, it doesn't fully satisfy. No offense to you pet lovers. So God puts Adam into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Behold, this is a creature on Adam's level. Notice that God fashions Eve from Adam's rib, from his side. Symbolically, that has a lot of meaning. This is someone on his level. This is someone who can stand side to side with him. Adam is not alone. God made us for community. And then we read verses 23 to 25, really powerful. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. What a loving God we worship. Thank you. He makes Adam, and then he makes Eve, and they complement each other so wonderfully. This is the first marriage in human history, and it is good. It is very, very good. We shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't forget that, especially in our day. Our culture is deeply confused about the meaning of marriage. Don't be confused. Look at this picture that our text gives us. That is marriage, a man and a woman united together as one. They become one flesh. And this passage is significant because it happened when all was well in the world. It happened before the tragedy of Genesis 3. This union between Adam and Eve, it sets the standard. It offers us a blueprint of what marriage should be. And it is a rebuke of our culture today. These verses speak directly against, you know, perversions of polygamy, adultery, porn, homosexual practice. These are violations of what God originally instituted. Obergefell may be the law of the land today, but in this text, we see that this law is out of step with Scripture. Now, I'm not for a second arguing for reactionary bigotry or homophobia. That, that would be unchristian. God has called us to love our neighbor, and that is the heart of our faith. We need to be the kind of church, we need to be the kind of Christians who welcome non-Christians who are gay um, and, and all the rest. But precisely because of the gospel, we demonstrate the love of Christ by speaking clearly to the way that God has designed us. 
And it would be cruel and unloving if we kept this a secret. But parenthetically, if you're part of this church, um, it's the first time I'm, I'm, I'm here, um, but if you're part of this church and you, and you feel sexual attraction to people of the same gender, if that's something you struggle with, please know that this is, this is like any other sin. And it isn't even the worst sin. Most of us here struggle regularly with sins like sloth and pride and envy and lust and greed. These sins are detestable to our Father in heaven. And every day, we all struggle with these kinds of sins and our internal desires betray us. This is why we need God's grace. And this is why we should live lives of daily repentance. We're all in the same boat. I keep telling people in my denomination, the PCA, let's not have a double standard where people who struggle with same-sex attraction are somehow the special case, the people that most need our help. That's not, that's not true. I mean, I don't know if you knew this, but for most of church history, the worst sin was pride. Lucifer, that was his sin, that was his sin pride, that led to him falling away. That's interesting. We're all in the, in the same predicament. People, we're all people who are united with Christ and struggling every day with indwelling sin. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. God has made us for community, and marriage is one of the most intimate, one of the most profound examples of God's goodness to us. And that's worth remembering when the going gets tough in marriage. It's one of those ironies of sin in our lives, even as Christians, that the most precious things we have, we take for granted, we even despise. God has made us for community. Adam and Eve gave witness to that in their marriage. And all the marriages represented in this one church testify to that great reality. And once again, these verses challenge us. Um, illegitimate divorces are more common in our churches than they used to be. W what we call divorce is a violation of the picture that we have in our passage. Um, and as it was mentioned uh, earlier, Scripture does lay out one or two legitimate grounds for divorce. We know believers who came to faith after they were already divorced, so the divorce happened when they weren't under the Lordship of Christ. Um, I realize that. But just thinking about American Christians in general, we need to be much more honest about this, uh, about divorce and God's attitude towards it. This isn't how it's supposed to be. But I'm not here to condemn anyone. I'm not the African curmudgeon this morning. I know many of you can testify that God is a gracious and merciful Father, abounding in steadfast love. As wonderful as marriage is, we also need to remember that Scripture tells us that marriage itself is only penultimate. It's not the final goal. 
It's not the be all and end all of human relationships. We will be fully united with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth without sin. And that is what marriage points to. And here is a clue that marriage isn't the final word. Consider the prophet Jeremiah, he was not married. John the Baptist, he was not married. The apostle Paul, he was not married. Jesus Christ himself was not married. WWJD, anyone? Go and read 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, it is better not to be married. Now that's a sermon your pastor needs to preach one day. This tells us that while marriage is a good, good thing, it's not the only good thing. And this is important because it reminds us that being single is not a defect. If you're single, that doesn't mean you're unfulfilled. It doesn't mean you're half human until you're married. I regularly remind my students at Covenant, they're easily confused on this point. If you're single, celebrate it, enjoy it, make the most of it, serve God, serve others with a freedom that we married folk envy. Use your gifts and bless others like Paul did, like Jesus did. And even if you're single, the main point of this passage still applies to you. God made us for community. You're not getting that community through marriage, but marriage isn't the only source of community. There is also the intimacy of friendship. Close friendships provide deep bonds of community. And I hope the Lord gives people uh, in this church close friendships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Such friendships offer life-giving community, especially to those who are single. So what have we learned? We're not alone in this world that God has created. We have the companionship of other creatures, the animal kingdom, and we have the companionship of each other, most profoundly in marriage and in friendship. God has made us for community. God is the one who entrusted us with this world to tend and to keep it. We are moved by God's lavish gifts to us the animal world, our fellow man. He gave it to us to enjoy, to gladden our hearts, to give thanks for. And yet it is important to see that these are only secondary loves. These are gifts, not the giver. Our primary love, our first love is God himself, God overall. These are his gifts. This is his world. We are his creatures. God has made us for community, but it's not enough to be a good steward of God's creation and the animals that we share the planet with. It's not enough to be married. It's not enough to have close friends. Those are good things. But if that's it, if that's the full extent of our lives, then we've made a horrible mistake. We've chosen a good thing over a supremely good thing. We've chosen a good thing over a supremely good God. God has given us community ultimately to turn us back in adoration of him. And that is what is so marvelous about this story. To be godly, to be spiritual, doesn't mean that we shun friendship and go solo. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't enjoy the goodness of God's creation and the goodness of friends. Our Father in heaven has given us all of that for our enjoyment and our pleasure. There used to be an older piety 
that had no time for that kind of enjoyment. It had almost a monastic view of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Deprive yourself of everything and cling to Christ. That was imbalanced. That was throwing out the baby with the bathwater. To be honest, though, I don't think that's our tendency today. I'm generalizing, but I think these days Christians are on the other extreme. We too easily relish the gifts, but forget the giver. Imagine it's Christmas. You're a kid again. It's Christmas morning and you wake up, you come down the stairs, and you see all these presents under the tree. And many of them have your name on it. Your heart is racing and you can't wait. Finally, it's time to open the presents. Whatever that tradition looks like in your family, you're unwrapping your presents, and one of them you unwrap, and it's that Lego set you've been waiting for so long. You unwrap it, and when you see what's inside, your heart does a backflip. You yell with happiness, and you immediately, you immediately rush down to the basement, and you stop playing with it. For the entire rest of the day, you don't talk to anyone. You ignore your parents. As far as you're concerned, none of them matter. They don't exist. It's just you and your Lego. My son is nine years old. I don't pretend this is from experience. Come on, that would be crazy. That's messed up. The first thing you would, the first thing you should do after you scream in happiness is jump up and hug your parents. You love the gift, yes, but you love your parents more. That gift is an expression of their love for you. God, God has given us this rich community to turn us back in adoration of him. God made us for community. That's, that's what we see in this passage. And it is one of the ironies of today that our technologies are driving us further away from each other. You all know this, the studies are unambiguous. Social media and related technologies have made modern people very lonely souls. We're turned in on ourselves, lost in artificial, superficial, virtual relationships, and we're increasingly forgetting how to be in community with real flesh and blood brothers and sisters in Christ. And the pandemic has made all of that a hundred times worse. So let's be thoughtful about how we structure our lives. Let's remember how God has designed us. Let's remember that God has made us for community. And let's remember that ultimately, he wants us to have fellowship with him, to be in communion with him. So to come back to where we started, this is our story. This is the story that each of us needs to inhabit. This is our father's world. He made this world for our enjoyment and our care. And he made us so that we flourish in community. And we flourish most, we thrive when we're in communion with him. But if you're regularly being shaped by counter-narratives, if there are false stories that capture your heart, you lose the plot in spite of all the Christian doctrine you confess. So let me say three things in closing. First, keep feeding on Scripture. I know we say this all the time. I know your elders say this all the time. But it's worth emphasizing. We're still in the first half of January, right? So it's not too late to find a good Bible reading uh, plan that helps you get into God's Word every day, building good habits of listening to God regularly. God's Word is alive and active 
And you can supplement that too with solid theological and devotional literature. I think especially today, we Christians need to be careful about what voices we're filling our heads with. Second, remember that willpower and self-effort alone won't cut it, which is why we need to pray constantly that God would work in us by his providence and supernaturally. We need God's help to be the people he wants us to be. We need his Holy Spirit to empower us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because like all good stories, there is a bad guy, the one the Bible calls the devil, and his sole purpose is to make us lose the plot of the story. And then third, that's why we need the church. God has made us for community. Surely this pandemic has taught us that, how badly we need it. And whatever you think about mask wearing, social distancing, and so on, we can never forsake the gathering of brethren. We need the church. We need the gathered community of saints. Sunday worship for sure, but all the other ways that we fellowship together in our immediate families and with our church family. It feels like an eternity since things were normal. We're exhausted, demoralized, fearful. But Jesus said, even the gates of hell will not overcome the church. We need our brothers and sisters more than ever. We need to remind each other of that story. It's time for us to start reaching out again and rebuilding the community we've lost. At times we'll wonder whether we're too far gone, but that's when we trust that God will take our small acts of obedience and like the loaves and the fish, we'll multiply them to bring healing and restoration to people overwhelmed by loneliness. I trust our Father will do that in the days ahead. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for your love for us and that you have spoken to us. We pray that you will take these words and by your spirit, uh, press them into our hearts, press them deep into our souls and make them come alive uh, this week, the following week, for the rest of our lives. Be at work in us, help us to build community, um, even in the midst of the pandemic and as we try to be safe and follow the best science, help us to, to have the community that you've given us and ultimately, Lord, uh, to be in communion with you. We love you, um, our Father and God. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.